your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome to Off Toggle Empire, where somehow, by the grace of God, for the very first time, we are isolated. Um, because there's been... I can't believe it's taken this long for, for, for one of us to run up against the, uh, the you know, protocol where it's prudent for us to isolate, but we're, we're, we're currently fine right now. We're just uh, a few miles apart. Yeah, I'm sure there were previous instances with one or both of us where we actually were exposed without realizing it. But, it, you know, it, in the, it wasn't even in my workplace, although that also went fully remote as of this morning for at least a few weeks. So things are going great here as we enter month number eight of the pandemic and it's worse than it's ever been. So it appears that somehow, miraculously, there aren't going to be any cancellations in the Big Ten this week, but they well, it's continue also to be Monday. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But it sounds from our Maryland source as though they're going to be fine to play, and the Maryland MSU game was the one that was in peril this week, but we'll talk about that a little more in the do we have to play this game section, also, also known as the preview. Well, then, uh, I'm going to crack open a Winfight Tri Brewster of the Week. It is from Toppling Goliath Brewery in Decorah, Iowa. It is King Sue Double IPA because, like a gigantic T Rex, holy shit. Uh, did you see what Iowa did to Minnesota? They, 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 they bit him clean in half. Yeah, now available here in Southeast Michigan is Toppling Goliath, something we avidly recommend to any of our viewers in this area. Speaking of, I was thinking of this earlier this week, well, over the weekend, I guess, and I don't know what prompted me to think of it, but I wonder where our people are. No, you know what caused me to think of it was I was contemplating, like, how do we diplomatically discuss where Michigan football is right now without sounding like we're just rubbing their noses in it? And one, I don't think there's a way we can, but two, I'm like, all right, so if we, when we get to Michigan, we're going to say what we say and then we're going to gesture apologetically at Michigan fans. And I'm like, well, do, are any Michigan fans really listening to this? And I was like, wait, who, who does listen to this? So I would be I, curious I, I, to see a map. Yeah, like a heat map or a pie chart, perhaps. You're the graphs guy. I mean, I would expect you'd be able to do that better than I would. Maybe, I mean, I assume that all of our many audio distributors are capable of, you know, data mining for us if we upgrade our membership or something. So, well, I mean, we our, fine. our podcast platform, uh, it, it, it's not built to be uh, interchangeable with, it, it doesn't export data to MS Paint that well. So I can't work with it. <laughs> so it's useless to you. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't import that metadata from Paint. So or into Paint. So it's not. Uh, not yeah, but here, here I am leading us. Here it is. In as we get into the middle of November, I'm the one leading us off onto lengthy tangents. When actually you teed us up to talk about our first game perfectly by bringing up an Iowa brewery. So we had another Friday night special. Seems like that's pretty much where Minnesota is going to be playing from now on is on Friday nights, which is that's fine. If you're Minnesota, you don't want many people watching your games anyway, this season from the look of it. So 
Iowa 35, Minnesota 7. It's good to see that even in these uncertain times, we can still get a nice passive-aggressive spite off between hated enemies. I mean, spite off really implies that it goes both ways. Uh, This was not early a competition. It was mostly just Kirk Ferentz getting out an awful lot of passive-aggressive energy. So to, to bring Sue the T-Rex back into it. It's kind of like if, uh, you know, after the T-Rex first appears in Jurassic Park, if if he just eats the whole Jeep and everyone in it, and then it fades to black and that's the end of the movie. That was this game. <laughs> yeah. It, if, you're, if you're Iowa, it's got to be encouraging to know that you can blow out a rival, even a shorthanded one like Minnesota is this season, playing almost completely one-handed on offense because even though Iowa was in control this whole game, I mean, the the discussion that we as a group had in the Slack channel was that Petrus might be the worst quarterback in the conference, especially now that Michigan State has benched Rocky Lombardi. Well, there's just multiple. Like it's, it's so difficult to understand how, and the thing is, that remained the case even though they got the run game on track and it should have made everything a lot easier for him. Yeah, he's got he's had opportunities. He hasn't made the most of it. And it's it's seems unfair to put it all on that guy because Spencer Petrus is certainly not the reason that they lost their first two games. Um, he himself is not. I mean, there were other things that they failed to capitalize on, but when you when you watch their offense at work, <laughs> and I again, I don't like having a single guys out for systemic problems, but boy, you watch their offense at work and everything is working fine except this one guy. <laughs> yeah, it is. And the thing, so you're right that the first couple weeks of the season, we commented, look, this offense should be really good as long as Petrus isn't terrible. He was terrible, but a lot of the other parts of the offense weren't working either. The line didn't block as well as they should have. They had some interesting decisions on play calling and, you know, putting Tyler Goodson on the shelf for no reason after a half dozen carries. They fixed those problems. And with these results, it feels like it's nuts to give Tyler Goodson anything less than 20 carries from here on out. But I'm, I'm still kind of hesitant to say that I was back on track because they've put up an average of 42 points the last two weeks against some just God awful defenses. Speaking of God awful defenses, so Minnesota showed once again that they can't stop the run. And that's a problem because in the Big Ten, every single opponent is perfectly content to do that until you force them to do otherwise. Oh, boy. I'm now mad that Isaiah Williams couldn't play last week. But, uh, yeah, what this says about Iowa is that they're basically – this puts them in the middle of the Big Ten West because – Purdue and Northwestern beat them, and, you know, Wisconsin, until they prove otherwise, you, you got to rank them above. Um, for Minnesota, oh, yeah, this for means sure. they're probably fifth or sixth best. So may seem like there's a huge gulf, but as far as the numerical ranking in how you order those teams, not really. <laughs> yeah. and it, A lot of volatility this year. <laughs> ton of volatility. Right. Right. It's, it's basically been – any game that does, and we've got kind of small sample sizes here for teams like Wisconsin and even Northwestern, where you know, Northwestern hasn't played any of the better opponents yet. 
we'll see what I think Purdue is going to end up being an important win for them, but we're still in a small enough sample size that it does feel like basically every game not involving Ohio state is just roll a couple of die and see how they turn up. And that's about as scientific as our predictions have been. I mean, we've had multiple huge point spreads, not only covered, but beaten outright by the underdog. And speaking of the underdog, at what point does PJ Flex record against his rivals become a bigger story in the arc of his success versus failure at Minnesota? Because if they lose to Wisconsin, which seems like a very reasonable conclusion at this point, I mean, again, like you're, you're talking about a defense that can't stop and run. You're talking about a Wisconsin team that has an offensive line as good as it's ever been. And they don't have that lead running back yet, but it's hard to imagine if Wisconsin ran for almost 400 against Michigan, that they're going to do much less than that against Minnesota. So if that game goes like we think it will, PJ Fleck will fall to a combined one and seven against Iowa and Wisconsin. Does that just make him Western Harbaugh? And if that's the case, maybe is it not just prudent to fire him now and save a couple more wasted seasons when you know you're not going to Indianapolis? If you don't beat Iowa and Wisconsin, you're not going to Indianapolis. Well, I mean, it depends on what your goal is because you can't necessarily say that P.J. Fleck won't do it. There's still enough upside in the program. You look at recruiting, they continue to get results there. It's not a program that feels like it's de- – like you can't expect 11 win seasons every year. But as far as a steady state is concerned, it doesn't feel like it's reached its peak um, or, or, or it doesn't feel like it's definitely – like it's only downhill from here. Let me put it that way. It may have plateaued, but it doesn't feel like it's – you can still see the upside in the in the future. Again, the, the recruiting results and – and the fact that uh, you know they survived people poaching their uh, their coaches and everything, um, fair enough. And and it's the other thing that we've mentioned a couple times in the first couple games of the season is they do have a roster gap to overcome on the defensive side of the ball in particular, where the previous staff really did not leave them much other than upperclassmen. There there were a couple of empty classes defensively, and that's just that's just something that takes time to get over. Now, there's no guarantee that he ever will, but it's fair enough to say that, look, we're at the we're pretty close to the end of the window when Fleck is going to be able to rely on that. Not that he makes that excuse, but it's certainly one that could be made for him. So. All right. um, Carrying on here, we'll go to Nebraska versus Penn State, which before this game happened, I think we agreed was kind of a a win or go home in the sense of the loser is most likely going to check out. And that's if Penn state hasn't already. Um, I don't know what happened. (coughs) Excuse me to Sean Clifford in the last couple weeks. I think we may have excused his turnover tendencies when he's going against defenses like Ohio state, because it was really kind of necessary, but against a lesser opponent like Nebraska, where, You ought to be able to move the ball without taking as many risky chances downfield. It it became too much, and he turned the ball over on the first two possessions. James Franklin had a very quick hook, probably to his credit, because they're already 0-3. Why don't you give your backup a chance in a game situation 
where he's not so far out of hand. You know, that's the one thing that I don't like about how a lot of coaches handle pulling their quarterback is if you wait until you're down three or four scores, well, your opponent's basically playing more conservative pass defense, you know, because they expect you to pass it. You're not giving them a normal game situation. It's not the same really as it, as it might go in a, in a start. So yeah, well, yeah, I don't, I definitely don't like when coaches do this thing where they wait until the game is basically out of hand and they have to change how they play in order to, to switch up the quarterback because then, you know, you, you have so much less of a margin for error than you already had. And it's it's fair to say here that Levis was not exactly inspiring in his first extended action, you know, 14 for 31, 219 yards, no touchdowns, also no interceptions. So that's something. But here's the other thing. And it's it's a it's a thing that I really can't get over. And I think without having watched every single snap of Penn State this year, it's not something I'm going to get a good answer on. But. You wouldn't guess by this score that Penn State outgained Nebraska by more than 200 yards. It was 501 to 298, and they held also, the ball. Also, 298. Walkers. Yeah, 298 for Nebraska is a fairly low yardage total for the Scott Frost yeah, that's Nebraska Cornhuskers against a right, against a capable offense. Which I think Nebraska. It's not, I think it's fair to say Nebraska is a capable offense. Holding a modern offense to 298 should win you the game almost every time, especially if you get over 500 yards. Uh, and it, it's just when you look at the box score, you can see a couple things here that might explain it. First of all, Nebraska was efficient and opportunistic with their chances in that. All right, so they open the game with a scripted drive that goes 75-ish yards and get a touchdown. Penn State's two early turnovers led directly to 10 more Nebraska points. And then Nebraska also had another long touchdown play later in the game. So although they had fewer yards, they capitalized on them. You know, uh, Luke McCaffrey is not a game breaker right now, but when he makes mistakes, they're more manageable. They're not drive killers the way that Penn State's turnovers have been. The other thing is just from a coaching standpoint, James Franklin gets a lot of flack for in-game decisions. And there's a couple, there are some high profile examples that you can think of you know, the fourth down play calling against Ohio State a couple of years ago. But in this game, with it very much in reach, Penn State settled for field goals at the weirdest, most disheartening times. So they kicked three field goals in this game. And that's not, I mean, that's a decent number. If you have a productive offense, you expect to you expect to have to ch- take a few kicks here and there. But, and you know, this isn't a surprise to you because we discussed this as it was happening, their field goal attempts came at the end of drives of 14 plays, 13 plays, and 10 plays. They had not long to mention time drives. And then they had two of those field goals were shorter than 35 yards. That's now the, the second field goal of the game brought it from a 21 point to an 18 point deficit. That's the kind of thing you're playing to get back in this game and you take a field goal there. Yeah. And you're still down three touchdowns. It doesn't do anything for you. I guess the hope at that point is, well, maybe on the next drive where Nebraska threats, we hold them to a touchdown, and then we still need three touchdowns. <laughs> like, I just, it doesn't make any sense. And those three drives took up over 17 minutes. That's more than a quarter of the game, more than half of Penn State's time of possession, scraping and scratching and putting these long drives together to take two short and one medium-length field goals. I just, like, 
on the one hand, sure, you can give Nebraska's defense some credit for eventually stalling Penn State out, but it's also kind of the entire philosophy behind a bend-don't-break type of defense, which is eventually most college offenses are going to make a mistake if you make them go down the field methodically. I just, it, Man, the re- then the reason that it took me a while to figure out why this bothered me so much but no, James Franklin's game plan there was just late stage D'Antonio ball where it felt like merely possessing the ball was the entire goal of the offense. Didn't necessarily matter if they scored points. Didn't necessarily matter if they're actually putting pressure on the defense. It's just, we have the ball, therefore the offense is working. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it felt yeah. like. And it was, yeah. The, the, it, it this, now, it would be it would be incredible. It would be incredibly frustrating if during the course of a normal season, your team twice uh, lost games where it outgained the opponent by over 200 yards. But Penn State <laughs> has only played four games, and in two of them, they've outgained their opponent by over 200 yards and lost. It's, it's mind-boggling. I mean, there's We don't have the capacity to quickly and easily do that kind of stat research, but... I don't. I mean, if they do it even one more time, like that's on a proportional basis, got to be some kind of record. So it has to. It has to be history making if they do it again. Yeah, and it. So as kind of the last bummer of a note here, we would be remiss if we didn't observe that. I think it might have been right around the time the game started, or sometime Saturday. The announcement did come out that Journey Brown is going to retire from football because of complications due to a heart condition, I believe, or potential complications due to a heart condition. I want to say he's having him right now, but it's also kind of noteworthy that it sounds as it sounded to me as though this condition probably would not have been discovered if they weren't doing the cardiac diagnostics that they're doing relating to the COVID testing that this may have yeah. gone under our, and who knows what might have happened. I mean, it's go, we're going down tunnels of speculation there, but as unfortunate as it is that he had to retire, obviously it's better that you discover this than let it go unknown and maybe something tragic happens. So that is an unfortunate note, but something else that came out in the Penn State headlines this week. And I do wonder if we, we've talked kind of speculatively about, you know, if a team gets to a certain point, might players start to hang it up? I saw on the bottom line just a bit earlier today that Louisville's running back, I think his last name is Hawkins, is now opting out. And oh, yeah, they, I think like, yeah, I think they're like two and five or something. So certainly at a point where they're not going to be relevant for any ACC postseason considerations. And I think we'll see more of those. Again, we thought about this in the context of Penn State because, well, first of all, Micah Parsons is already out, but they have a couple other guys. You think Pat Fryermuth and Jason Owe, who are going to be potential first-round picks. I think as the losses mount and, you know, the odds of playing meaningful football again this season really diminish, I wonder if that's something we might not see players give more consideration to. So I'm going to talk about something that's going to make you happy, which is your team prevailing in a Big Ten conference game. Well, here's what we know for sure now, is that Rod Smith defeats Rob Smith every single time. Uh, 
Rod Smith is 2-0 against Rob Smith. And when Rutgers hired Rob Smith as defensive coordinator, I said, oh, we're going to run the option on them all day and win the game. And we did just that. <laughs> Having nice. Isaiah Williams back helped. That's our, our uh, fourth different starting quarterback in four games. Um, but <laughs> fans we well kept I mean, really, if there's a season to just try them all, isn't this it? Yes. Um, and again, you've, you've wanted to see this guy. He's this crown jewel type of recruit, a guy that a programmer in Illinois' position really can't afford to waste. And you saw in this game really what he's capable of. And I'm not going to pretend Rutgers has the best defense, but their linebackers are good. They've got some guys on defense that can on the line that can eat blocks. And Williams was impressive, and look, his his stat line is going to be impressive enough, 31 carries for 196. But when you look at that kind of stat line, you usually assume, oh, well, there's probably a couple long carries in there that skew the average. No, his longest play was 26 yards. It was just chunk play after chunk play. And Illinois also got another 131 from Chase Brown on 17 carries. So you've got something going here. I mean, there's going to be plenty of teams that will have the physical presence up front to disrupt that option, but think about the rest of Illinois' schedule. You've already played Wisconsin. You've got Ohio State. That's not going to go well, but the other teams in the West, I mean, we talked about this all offseason. There, there was a lot of turnover in terms of disruptive playmaking defensive ends in the Big Ten. Some teams are still well-stacked enough that they're going to have them, and you guys will step forward, but you don't see Carter Coughlin. You don't see A.J. Epinesa. You don't see Joe Gaziano. The types of guys who you would be concerned about disruptive playmaking, uh, they're not going to be around as much. So this option-based attack, I think, could you know have some benefits for Illinois in the sh- in the interim in terms of getting wins, not just in terms of fielding an offense that's you know more than dead weight. Well, it's very complicated here. So one, I love the moment for you know that Isaiah Williams started and then won a game because you know again, like, like you mentioned, this was a guy that. Uh, you know, wanted the opportunity to play quarterback. Uh, his high school coach, of course, we hired onto the staff, and uh, and then he got to to, to go out there and, and run wild. But uh, also, he's very much the prototypical Rich Rod quarterback, uh, but built even smaller than a Denard Robinson. So that's the thing about the potential impending quarterback controversy when Brandon Peters comes back next week might not even be all that much of one because you, you know what – this offense does to those quarterbacks, they take a beating and uh, it's hard to imagine him carrying the ball 31 times, you know, doing what he did no, right. against Rutgers for the <clears> entire <throat> season. Yeah. And, and even for an abbreviated season like this, I mean, you go three or four games of that, you can expect the guy to get hurt. So I guess that raises the question then. I mean, if Peters is able to play, what's the coaching staff do there? Do they really go back to him after what they just saw out of Williams? I mean, I wonder that because what what it looked like a lot more to me was the 2018 offense with uh, A.J. Bush, where you absolutely have to respect the quarterback's running ability, even if, you know, you, you dare him to beat you with his arms, knowing that he probably isn't going to most of the time. Um, of course, you know, the, the defense performed generally pretty poorly, um, but was bailed out by three god-awful decisions by Noah Vedrill. Um, let's let's not yeah. forget what happened here. Illinois um, 
kicked two field goals in what seemed like four down territory for me in in a tie game and missed them. And then on the last one with under two minutes to go, Rutgers was running the ball and they were running the ball and they were approaching field goal range. And it sure seemed like they were going to set up to win it. And then Vedral dropped back under no pressure and threw a pick. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, that had been the biggest improvement with this Rutgers offense is they were taking care of the ball. Um, and yeah. I, I just don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. As soon as they didn't, and basically, I, I wonder if, frankly, with the quality of the defense they saw, if they're like, all right, we can take more chances in this and get away with it and start to open up our passing game a little bit. Cause that, that's got to be kind of the natural progression. If they want to go anywhere, they've got to open the playbook somewhat and do and be a little more aggressive but as much as we've talked about Vedral as a stabilizing force yeah there's still kind of a ceiling on him because he has lost out the job at a couple of places despite basically following Scott Frost around so it's you know it's there is signs of improvement again from Rutgers though okay because you've got big plays in the passing game out of Bull Mountain and again you did see the interceptions but if they can get something in the vertical pass game to make a little bit of room, we saw Isaiah Pacheco have a pretty good game today as well. And then the last thing, how, how did we miss in our season previews and in our reviews so far that Rutgers kicker is named Valentino Ambrosio? Yeah, that immediately rockets all the way up the charts for the most Rutgers name. I mean, that is just, that that's Rutgers AF. Um, he had a very strange moment early in the game. Well, really not so much early. It's just about halfway through it. Have you ever seen a first half end the way this one did? I don't know if you were watching, but um, <laughs> trying to set up a field goal, the uh, Rutgers, I can't remember who it was that was running the ball, but they fumbled it out of bounds as they were falling out of bounds. But it was ruled that they fumbled it while they were in bounds. So it's, with seven seconds to go, they had, they had to start the clock. And so they scrambled and couldn't get the kick team on. Like they got it in time to kick the field yeah. goal, but he t- he got a really shitty look at it and just shanked it horribly because I mean yeah, because they were scrambling to get in position. No, I've I've not seen at least not that I can think of anything quite like that. It was again you know this this matchup brings us so many things every year. It, it feels like there's some new blessing that we get out of this matchup. Yep, it's Ill and Nutgers. So. You know, Rutgers, of course, I mean, I think that they hurt themselves a bit by getting really cute with the play calling uh, early and often. But uh, maybe, you know, perhaps that's just the confidence that comes with, hey, we're a real football team. And, hey, let's try some stuff out here. This is basically a scrimmage year. So whatever. It's not going to be. We've won a game. It's not going to be the end of the world if we don't win this one. Um, As I'm sure is disappointed to to hear as a fan, but it's also understandable. Um, as for Illinois, it, it, I, I still wouldn't mind getting a new coach in here because I don't know when we're going to if we don't. Defense is still really bad. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the practice year mentality, that's where I am with my team as well as they got blanked by Indiana 24 nothing. Apparently, actually, the first home shutout loss for Michigan State since 1985, which – wow. I guess that's um, kind of encouraging news because I would have assumed man, that like somewhere in the Muddy Waters era and the Bobby Williams era and the John L. Smith, I assumed there would have been a shutout loss at home in there somewhere. We played Ohio State and 
Michigan when they were good pretty much every year for that entire duration. So that's kind of, uh, you know, not, not something I love to know because now it's a new date for that, but interesting thing to learn. You know, honestly, this game, this game, I think went the way that you, you probably saw it going realistically. Uh, There's always the, the color added to it by the fact that Indiana MSU games have been so drunk lately. But if you were just to say, all right, the, the cold, the the cold calculating part of me says Indiana's twenty four points better than Michigan State, right? I'm so well, at least no, it, it could have been worse. But let's get let's get a couple things straight here. Which I, you know, I listened to basically the end of this game at, on MSU's radio broadcast because I had to go and get my COVID test, and they wanted to punch up from an encouraging standpoint that, wow, you know, fought him to a standstill after halftime. That's because Indiana stopped throwing the ball. Uh, let's be absolutely clear. They could have named whatever stat line for Ty Freifogel they wanted, which continues a long, disheartening tradition of one Indiana receiver every year against Michigan State turning into an amalgamation of Jerry Rice and Randy Moss because – Feinfogel had a buck 78 and two touchdowns at halftime, I think. And they targeted him maybe like three or four times after that. So they easily could have gotten him to 300 receiving yards if they'd wanted MSU's defensive scheme. So first of all, it's fair enough to say that MSU was missing three of its starting defensive backs, but I don't know who they have that would have stopped Feinfogel with the way he was playing. So there's that. I mean, after halftime, Indiana really did power it down. Worked it was the, the gentleman's game. blowout. Yeah, in a way. Although I think in the gentleman's blowout, you usually, yeah, you usually let your opponent score. And I don't believe – I'm pretty sure Michigan State never got into the red zone. They might not have even crossed the 30 in this game. If they did, it was pretty late. Um, I'm, I'm not getting as much pushback from the rest of the fan base anymore – on the question of whether this team is good or not. Um, I think we're more seeing that, okay, yeah, that we're really terrible. Now the debate is kind of shifted to whether that's mostly D'Antonio's fault or if the team would be better if D'Antonio was here in any appreciable way. Uh, I, I can't believe there are still people willing to carry D'Antonio's water seeing what this personnel situation is. Or that there is anybody willing to blame Mel Tucker at this point, given the situation, one, that he walked into, and two, that developed over the course of his first summer with the team. I just don't understand that standpoint. But, you know, without touching on the politics too much, I can infer what type of perspective a lot of those people have on things like the coronavirus and whether it's a real problem or not. So, strangely, despite the result in this game, the first home shutout in 35 years, I feel much more encouraged than I would have thought possible in a three-score home shutout loss because we at least learned something for sure, which is Rocky Lombardi ain't it. (laughs) He is not it. And I just, you know, it's a tough call because two weeks ago, he's the hero against Michigan. That usually buys you a ton of rope. He, but he used all that rope and hung himself with it. I mean, he was terrible in this game. He looks like he'd never seen his own defense before. He chucked it straight to Taiwan Mullen twice in the first half, I think in consecutive possessions. And I would get, again, as with 
James Franklin and his turnover prone starter, I would give Mel Tucker some credit for giving the early hook because we saw other guys <laughs> in a certain other game involving a team from this state go stick with a quarterback who made a couple big mistakes until it was really too late for there to be any chance of making a difference. Um, so they went with Peyton Thorne after that. He, he does not have as strong of an arm as Lombardi does. He is more mobile, though. I like his pocket presence more. And he also seems to understand his physical ability because there are a couple plays where he's, you know, he takes a snap, makes a read, makes a read, rolls out of the pocket. He's getting chased. He starts running. He knows exactly how long he has before he's got to let the ball go. He sees the window that he can put the ball in without with it being caught versus possibly intercepted. So in some of those little quarterbacky kind of ways, he feels like he's a little bit more promising. I wonder what his ceiling is, but I have to think this week it's got to be Peyton Thorne for a little bit at least. And then if the last couple of games you want to throw Theo Day to the dogs against Ohio State and Penn State, that's fine. But there's a there's some intriguing things here. He's never he's never going to be mistaken for Trevor Lawrence from an arm strength perspective, but there might be. I mean, with his running ability in particular, I think MSU could stitch together a more functional offense. Well, you know, so when your team is having some experience with when your team is just free falling uh, out the bottom of the Big Ten, one of the things you look for is how do opponents that are clearly better than you uh, treat you? And at the very least, Michigan State got a reasonable amount of respect, starters in fairly late. Um, it's always better to be treated like a like a gazelle than like a sloth. Uh, their uh, sloths actually are viewed as as so such easy targets by harpy eagles that they will actually leave them alive so they can train young harpy eagles how to hunt with them. They'll just keep repeatedly catching them and dropping them and then waiting for them to get back up. So they actually leave them alive for target practice, much like when Northwestern rested their starters against us a couple years ago. It was the same thing. That's you know, at the very least, you're not at that stage there where people are treating you like a sloth and just using you know your starters for keeping the game close so that your starters will stay in against their second string well yeah but again i i think it was pretty clear when indiana despite missing a couple starters on the offensive line decided to give extensive interior run calls for stevie scott and samson james they weren't getting any yard and that's really the only way you can lose to this Michigan State team is basically if you did exactly what Michigan did with their game plan, which is we're going to establish the run, we're going to dominate between the tackles, no matter how long it takes, we're going to move that 330-pound guy, and we're going to run inside. Indiana waited until they had a three-score lead to do that. <laughs> if you if you do that when the at the beginning of the game and make it the base of your game plan, you might let Michigan State hang around long enough that something happens for them on offense. But that's really the only way. I mean, this defense is still slow to the edge. They're still terrible in coverage. As long as you don't run right at them, yards on them, and Indiana started running right at them, basically to get the game over with is what it felt like to me. Speaking of getting it over with, a game that I think a lot of us thought was going to be unattractive despite the undefeated nature of the teams involved Northwestern 27, Purdue 20. This was a very watchable game with a weird 5 p.m. Eastern start. Yeah, I'm not sure why they moved back a couple of the games. Um, it, I don't know, maybe just 
to add to the 2020-ness of it all. Um, but, I mean, I, I figured that this game would be decided by basically Purdue doing something really dumb at the end because Northwestern just makes people do that. But uh, Northwestern actually took a little took control of this one a little earlier in the second half than I thought they would. They did, and it's you – know, all right, so look. I don't know why teams go in against Northwestern without a better plan to get something going on the ground. If you So, all right, failing this to sack a desk, Purdue only ran for two yards. But even if you take out the sacks, they still only ran for 26 yards. So getting being completely one-dimensional – on offense and Purdue had to throw the ball 51 times that they were still able to keep it this close is something of a testament to the efficacy of their passing game. Uh, but man, not getting anything on the ground like that, you can't do it against Northwestern. You got to find a way and look, they're stubborn to, they're very difficult to move inside. Like that is a, that is a thing that people never seem to realize with Northwestern is line that's coached to be very difficult to move on the ground and so it feels like teams get into games with them and it catches even divisional opponents by surprise where they get into these games with Northwestern. It's like, wait, well, we, we can't run the ball on these guys. How can we not run the ball? And I'll try it again. Now to their credit, Purdue really didn't spend a whole lot, didn't waste a whole lot of time running the ball. They only had six attempts at halftime and being down, I think 17, 10 at that point, they were close enough that they could have been stubborn. They could have tried to stick with it, but they had more of an, of an inclination to go with what worked, which is sticking to the air. Um, but yeah, that being said, there's, there's really not a whole lot else to say about this game in terms of big mistakes. I mean, this is still an object lesson in the importance of not turning it over though, because Purdue ran 28 plays in the first half. That's only three more than MSU ran in the first half of their game this weekend. But Purdue was within a touch was within a touchdown instead of being blown out because they didn't make things impossible for their defense. Purdue didn't turn it over. And so even though their offense wasn't working at all, they still made their opponent go the whole length of the field. And that really helped. Uh, if you're looking for other stats that might have told the story of this game, Purdue really struggled on third down. I know I saw a graphic at one point where they were two for 12 um, and Northwestern wasn't great, but they were just good enough to put just enough points on the board to back up their defense. And that's how they've won so many games. I mean, it, it feels like at some point playing all these close games would be untenable, but because they're so disciplined, because they play mistake free football, most of the time, really, if, if Northwestern's getting blown out, they're either playing Ohio State or they're having their uncharacteristic game where they're making mistakes. It doesn't happen often. But if they're losing big, they're either just getting blown away by superior talent or they're playing out of character. If they play in character, which Fitzgerald is really good at getting them to do, they will win a lot of these close games. And that's the undeniable lesson of the last 15 years now of Fitzball. Uh, the other thing I'd be remiss if I didn't mention – God, what a difference Peyton Ramsey made. I mean, I just can't believe that there wasn't more of a market for him. You know, that's weird because normally plans for guys of his experience and talent level, you hear about, oh, you know, 
Blue Blood A is interested in this transfer. Blue Blood B is interested in this. I mean, Georgia, for instance. Yeah, although it's fair to say Georgia had already filled up on transfer quarterbacks for the season, or maybe they hadn't. Ramsey announced kind of late that he was transferring, didn't he? So it could have just been a – well, all the seats are taken on the on this game of um, game of musical chairs, but maybe I'm misremembering. I, in any case, though, it seems kind of in keeping with what we can infer of his personality, though. Because remember, even when he was supplanted by a redshirt freshman last year for the starter, you know, all we heard about once I mean, once he was back in the starting lineup and the broadcast cared about him again was, oh, you know, he was a great teammate after getting benched. Never hung his head, didn't want to quit on his, you know, his guys on the team. So he stuck around and he ultimately was rewarded because he played most of the season. Of course, then transfers, but that becomes understandable in the context of your last season of eligibility. So we do have a little bit of evidence of him being a guy that's not necessarily a me first type of guy. And, you know, maybe we're reading a little too much in the tea leaves here, but it does seem that the kind that, a low-key, hard-work, anti-union program like Northwestern might be something that appeals to him. And it's also still pretty close to home for him. I think he's from Indiana, isn't he? I believe so. I mean, what, it was named after Peyton Manning? Yeah, I'm which would make sense. Up? I mean, I, I assume... No, you're, I think you're right. He certainly has the right demographic bracket for it to have been well but hold on i mean to be named after peyton manning no he could have been born in the late 90s yeah you would have been. so I, I think that's gotta be it okay so we'll get then to the highlight and low light of the week depending on who on which perspective you're coming from this this would have been game day if they hadn't decided to go to a golf course instead wisconsin 49 Michigan 11, and you came up with what I think was a very adroit analogy for this game as you flipped between this and others. What did this remind you of? It's like, uh, it's like you know, flipping channels, I hit National Geographic and I see a lion chase down an impala and just, you know, leap and tackle it. And that was basically the first, you know, few minutes of the game. And then as I'm flipping, I flip to another game, I flip back there. And every time I flip back to that game, it's just like, yep, oh, lion's still eating them. It, it's uh, still eating that Impala. And I uh, flip to another game and flip back that way. Yep, well, he's still eating them. And Impala's, uh, you know, making the occasional But definitely, it's definitely over. He's definitely eating him. And, uh, you know, go back, watch another, yeah. flip back to that one at commercial. And it's like, well, I think he's still alive. He's not making noises anymore. Probably not feeling any more pain. That Lion sure is eating him. Yeah, because there, there was one drive, I think late in the second quarter, maybe early in the third, where Michigan actually did put their did get their act together on offense a little bit, and they got down the goal to go. And then they called the most predictable quarterback run I've ever seen. Where and they they show they tip their hand on this every time when they do it. By the way, because they keep Milton in the shotgun. They I don't think I've seen them bring him under center. So he stays in the shotgun and then they line up Ben Mason, the fullback next to him. And it's like, all right, well, clearly you're not just going to use him in the read option or hand it off to him. You have Mason back there as a lead blocker. So this is going to Milton. So everybody just attacked Milton. And that's exactly what happened. And Wisconsin brought him down behind the line. They turned it over on downs. And so that was, 
that was kind of the death throw of Michigan. But man, there. But again, because was, I missed that, all I managed to flip back to was, yep, just another shot of Wisconsin just chewing the entrails out of Michigan, still beating Hart. <laughs> yeah, because you know you get that occasional shot where it's like, oh look, the, the, the gazelle slipped away. Maybe he's gonna. Oh no, he's hurt real bad. He's not going far. And that's kind of what this was. And there were a lot of numbers, a lot of stats that you could use to sum this game up. I mean, Wisconsin ran for more than six and a half yards per carry, even though for probably three and a half quarters, they were just trying to run the ball. Uh, and it was, it was there's just nothing Michigan could do about it. So there, uh, here are a few of them. I tried to keep this list short because I know we're close to the end here, but this is Michigan's first one in three start. Since 1967, that's the Johnson administration. That's before the height of the Vietnam War, before the assassination of Martin Luther King. It's their worst home loss since 1935. And given that it was in the 30s, that probably means it was back when Minnesota was really good. That's how far back you got to go to find a home loss for Michigan this bad. Back to when Minnesota was good. They threw more interceptions in the first quarter than they had total yards, two to one. But look, that stat's pretty understandable because as far as the radar, Joe Mill, of of the linebacker that, ah, shit, I gave up the whole line. As far as the linebacker, Joe Milton hit right in the gut. I'm sure the guy just wasn't as radar. Damn it, I screwed up the delivery. But hey, pretty appropriate for that, isn't it? So speaking of Milton. On both ends. And it's not like Wisconsin, I mean... (sighs) I just refuse to believe that on on talent alone, Wisconsin could possibly be 40 points better than Michigan. It's just, name for me the last time you saw Jim Harbaugh's Michigan Wolverines get punched in the mouth, get set back, and then hang in there and keep fighting during a game. Well, okay. I can't come up with one. Yeah, there's one. The Penn State game last year where I think they fell behind like 21-0 or 28-0, and they did come back. The, and if you know, <laughs> I I'm, I swear I'm not making fun of the Michigan fans who are who are attributed the trope of Michigan didn't lose, we simply ran out of time. That Penn State game last year, they really did just run out of time. If it had gone another couple possessions, they would have won. So that was one example. But because <laughs> that's kind of the exception that proves the rule, though, because if you have to, if that kind of thing sticks out in your mind that much as an outlier, that's not a good indication. And no, Wisconsin is absolutely not 40 points more talented than Michigan. If you go simply on the recruiting rankings, Michigan's got probably 30, 35 blue chip players on their roster, if I had to guess. Wisconsin could probably count them on both hands. That was the case a couple of years ago when they were in the playoff chase and everyone's like, all right, let's look at the number of blue chips for Alabama, like 77 or whatever, <laughs> like Ohio State, 60-something, Clemson, 60-something. Here's Wisconsin, eight. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. that's just not the way they put their roster together. They're not a more talented team, but they're way better. That's for damn sure. Uh, I guess it's worth pointing out if you're looking as a Michigan fan, you know, is there any reason for me to watch this? Well, yeah, because earlier today it was officially announced the quarterback competition is open once again. So maybe that little flash of success you saw when Cade McNamara got on the field, maybe he gets a chance to show if he can do more of that. Uh, but given that Joe Milton was supposed to be equal parts Patrick Mahomes and Cam Newton, boy, if that's the case, this coaching staff's even worse than we thought because they took that guy, that Newton-Mahomes chimera, and they made him this in four games. 
it's it's astounding. And if there is a soul left in this fan base that still thinks Harbaugh can turn it around, they are keeping that opinion to themselves right now. I mean, every single, almost every single game that they play is yet more evidence that he just never came home from Columbus four years ago. Yeah, it's it's hard to dispute that he's not the guy they thought they were getting when they hired him, which by the way, I mean, at the time of the hiring, absolute grand slam. Like, with his resume and what you assumed he was going to do. And even again, in that first year or two, there were indications that he might've done it. But I, I really do. I wonder if you're onto something there because you've said that in the past and I've always been like, like, come on, that's, that's ridiculous. This guy's one of the better coaches on the planet. He's got all these resources. He's in the place he's most comfortable. Like this is probably going to work as much as I hated to say it, but man, this is year six guys. And look, it's fair to say, all right, so if you want to look at particular problem areas, okay, the offensive line. So they only had one starter coming back from last year, and now both tackles have been hurt for a couple weeks. So you are way down in your depth chart versus where you were a year ago. But they've recruited, like, these guys are all four stars. If not, I mean, they, I don't think they have any five stars on the offensive line, but with the exception of Astartes, the center, who is a former walk-on, I believe every single guy they ran out there is a four-star. Kind of the penalty of being of being one of these blue blood programs is everyone assumes all your players are good. Same thing on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, they have two new corners from last year, but this system is unforgiving. And if you've gone multiple years recruiting slow corners, which is some, a complaint that I've heard from a lot of Michigan sources, yeah, that this is the result of that, that you have to modify your defensive scheme midstream. You have to start playing a lot more high safeties and now all of a sudden you can't throw seven guys at the quarterback with a surprise blitz anymore. So yeah, they have some personnel shortages in key spots, but there's plenty of talent on the roster that you would think they could find another option. And it's their own fault. They designed this roster so that they had that kind of turnover on the offensive line. If you're concerned about that, bring in transfers, play younger guys earlier. Like you are, it's year six. There's nobody to blame, but you. Well, just like players, coaches get better sometimes. Coaches regress sometimes. Remember, Jim Harbaugh, before he even before he even got Andrew Luck, he beat Pete Carroll USC as a 41-point underdog with Tavita Pritchard. Like, this is not yeah. a guy that's not capable of out-coaching somebody. This is not a guy that's never out you know, that always coaches with a talent advantage. This is just not the same guy that coached Stanford in San Francisco. It's not. I don't think it's the same guy that coached 2015-16 Wolverines. Yeah, but you know. I guess there is one, there's one silver lining to all this, not for Michigan fans, but for the rest of us, which is, well, I mean, it's not silver lining because we're all cackling with glee at watching this, by the way. Let's make that absolutely clear. But if there is one thing about the mystery of this that is relieving, it's that, you know, if you think about the end of the D'Antonio era at Michigan State, there's not going to be some highfalutin book written about it. We're going to have to speculate forever, like, where did, did he really want to keep his friends? Did the athletic department decline to give him enough resources to upgrade? You know, what exactly was it that happened there? In this case, we're going to have a book from John Bacon probably by Christmas about why Harbaugh didn't work at Michigan. So there won't be any need to speculate. Yep. It's a high visibility place. And uh, guess what? If you, if you crash and burn, you're going to do it in front of God and everybody. Source for Big Ten Talk, it's Off Tackle Empire!